For those of you who don't, those of you who don't know, that's my son who just brought this out here, and it's the most I've seen him move today. So let's uh, <laughs> praise God for that. Um, it's great to see you. If you're new here, my name is Jeff. I have the privilege of teaching God's word to this little corner of God's kingdom. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. Um, wouldn't you know it, we're going to talk about the resurrection the week after Easter, but that's all right. Uh, I tell people from time to time that, uh, you know, I know we, we, make, we make a big deal about Easter. Uh, we call it, you know, celebrate the resurrection week or the holy week or things. And that's all, that's all right and good, but I celebrate the resurrection every week, right? No? Okay, I, every single week I come to the church and I, and I celebrate the resurrected Christ. And sometimes you get the great opportunity about talking about the resurrection in a particular passage. And this is one of those, this is one of those passages. Before we get into it, though, I want to ask you kind of a hypothetical question. I want you to imagine uh, that you are called as a missionary, and the place that you have been called to go, you just have this deep sense that you are supposed to go and serve in London, England, which is actually one of the most unreached places in the world these days. You might not know that. So you're going to go serve in London, England, where the church has basically been dying for several, several years. And the reason it has been dying is because there's been a real move in England over the last on, couple hundred years toward uh, what's called philosophical naturalism, meaning that like the Charles Darwinian theory and the belief that science can answer all of the questions. So the context that you're walking into is not the religion of, say, Buddhism or Hinduism or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a religion of secularism where people don't believe in things that are non-physical for the most part. I mean, you could talk about angels and demons and God and devil and all that kind of stuff, but it's sort of a game that we play. It's the way that most people who are come from that kind of philosophical background think. And so you're now tasked... Um, with this, I have to preach the gospel to a bunch of people who, when I mention miracles, will dismiss it out of hand. Miracles, miracles don't happen. We live in a natural world. It's, it is what it is. It arrived here because of a whole bunch of mutations and chance events that took place, and here we are. No such thing as miracles. There's no such thing as acting, something that's acting outside of that, of that reality. It's a closed system. So now you've got to preach the gospel, which says that there is something outside of that system, something that has an authority, and actually that there was a guy who rose from the dead, and that's, that's actually, he, had claimed, he claimed to be God himself. And so now you've got you to proclaim that to them. See, here's the crazy thing. If, if you go and do this, you will quickly learn that if you leave out the part about resurrection and you just talk about, like, positive things and how it is that, you know, this following Jesus can help you uh, live better and be better at life or, or whatever, you can, you can try to sell the product by ignoring all the things that they will find unmentionable, like resurrection, that you'll get a lot of people who believe. You will. 
number of people will say, this is really great. Jesus is really great. It's fantastic. But don't bring up the resurrection-y stuff. What I just described, just so you know, what I just described that's happening in London, England, even today, is what's been happening, happening uh, for years, hundreds of years in the Western world. Most people call it theological liberalism, and the belief that they had, the people who were theological liberals, like, they use Christian words, but what they end up saying is, well, you know, look, most people aren't going to buy into the idea that there's, gonna, there's a God who ra- sent his son who is 100% man and 100% God, and then he lived a sinless life, and then he died on a Roman cross, and then he was resurrected three days later in power. Like, people especially aren't going to believe that last part. It's a miracle in a closed system. So look, you can say all sorts of cool things, like he rose again in our hearts. But don't say he actually rose, and then so much, so many Christians for the last hundreds of years, has basically said, yeah, you know what, what, big, what difference does it make anyway, whether he rose or, he, whether he rose bodily or he just rose in our hearts? What difference does it make? Maybe it's just a metaphor. Can you have Christianity without the resurrection? Now, you and I are like, I don't think so. And that's because we like the Bible and we like guys like the Apostle Paul who when he had a chance to talk to a group of people who didn't believe in things like resurrections, they were called the Epicurean philosophers of those days. Paul goes to um, Mars Hill, which is on the, in, in the city of Athens. And it was the place that everybody kind of gathered together to talk about their philosophies in those, in those days. And so he goes to this place, the Areopagus. And he starts having debates with these people about Jesus who they had never heard about. And he shares with them all sorts of really interesting uh, stories that link to their world, right? He quotes one of their prophets, and he starts to talk about how this God, in fact, you guys have a statue to outside the city, and you just don't know about him, so here he is. And he gets to the end. He's talking to Epicurean philosophers who do not believe that, the bo- that, that there's anything after death. Period. If you mention it, they will shut their ears. So here's Paul's final words in his, in, in his sermon to them. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead in 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 your hearts. Now, now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, okay, we'll, we'll hear you again about this. All my writing is sticking. That stinks. Here's the thing. There is no Christianity without a resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the centerpiece of everything that we believe. The Corinthian church that we are reading about and studying about, they had a problem with this. Now, they lived in a Greek world that believed that physical bodies weren't that important. And so the idea that, that God would rise somebody bodily like me back to life. It's like, why would he do that? I mean, just, spirit should just float up into the sky. And yet, 
Paul was saying, they believed, listen, that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed that. But the idea that the rest of us would follow Jesus in rising from the dead was something they were like, no, no, no. No, no, no. Actually, what will happen is that Jesus rose bodily for some theological reason, then that's fine. But the rest of us are going to die and our spirits will float off into the ether. And so Paul's like, you want to bet? So he has a go with him, actually. And here's the three steps to his argument. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to use those as kind of hangers to hang our thoughts on, right? Here's the three steps. Number one, don't be ridiculous. Number two, the future is fabulous. And number three is sober up then. Don't be ridiculous. The future is fabulous, so sober up. Acting like drunk people. He actually says that. So here's the first of the, don't be, don't be ridiculous. Look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, right, because we've established that fact, he did that in the previous verses. Everybody agrees that Christ died from the, rose from the dead. The people in Corinth did believe that too. If that's the case, how can some of you, not all of you, but some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? They were saying, of course, that the resurrection of the dead was the thing that happens to us. Jesus rose physically, but not us. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. See, your logic is flawed. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised either. Why are you holding Jesus out as someone who did this doesn't apply to? And if Christ has not been raised, then look, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Look, everything that you believe, all the time you spend in church, my work, says Paul, when I travel around and I proclaim the gospel, and you, when you share it with your friends and neighbors, in vain, meaning worthless, meaningless, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead. Look, we are even found, it's not just that it's useless and worthless, there is a God who did not rise Jesus, raise his son from the dead, apparently, according to them. And so now we're misrepresenting God. So God is in heaven, while Paul proclaims the resurrection of the dead from, you know, Jesus rose and you'll rise too, and that's your great Christian hope. And God's up there going, I didn't say that. I don't, where's this guy getting this from? So this is the Holy Spirit. What, did you hear what he just said? How dare he? Because we testify that the God that He testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If this is true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, again, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. See, the the, the thing about the resurrection. That third day, that Sunday morning, that was like the greatest comeback in the history of comebacks, yeah? Like, okay, so you, see, you watch the movies from time to time, there's a guy, the good guy's getting the living daylights beat out of him, right? And, and all of us know the story, because you wouldn't go to the, my wife would ask me ahead of time, and she would say to me, Is the, does the good guy win? And I would say to her, of course the good guy wins. They don't make movies where the good guy doesn't win, Right? And if they made a movie where the good guy didn't win, nobody would go to it. Because we want the good guy to win. Even though he's given the living daylights beat out of him. There's that final scene, right? Where Poe the panda 
is getting, you know, like Kung Fu Panda, and he's getting little daylights beat out of him, and all of a sudden he's realizing, oh, I can do the little snap thing, and everything's going wrong, and he goes, skadoosh, and then poof, everything. And what do you do? Your little kids are there like, yes! And that's the first time of many times in the years to come that they'll watch a movie where Batman's getting beat up, and then in the last minute he's like, I'm, I'm Batman, right? Our, our hearts sing, yearn for that kind of comeback. We tell the story over and over and over again because we long for it. If there is no resurrection from the dead, says Paul, that never happened. The bad guys won. Still in your sins. And, and those who have fallen asleep, this is the great phrase, right? Those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Paul doesn't like using the word death because he thinks it doesn't apply. Not to Christians. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they, they, they perished. I uh, did a funeral a lot of years ago. You know, usually when you do a funeral, the family says, you know, come. your job is to comfort the afflicted and talk to them in loving terms about the, the hope that is in Christ. You don't, you don't confront at funerals, but <laughs> the funeral that I was doing was actually for a Dutch man who was one of the more confrontational Dutch men that you'd ever meet. And his whole family was coming over from Europe, none of them Christians, almost all of them secularists, what I described earlier, didn't believe in God, didn't believe in resurrection, didn't believe in anything. So they're all coming over. They don't ever hear, they, they hear nicey, nicey, nicey all the time about God. So his wife said to me, I want you to absolutely have, just trouble them. <laughs> and I'm like, you, you sure? She said, oh, I've heard you. I want you to trouble them. So, okay. She said, it was my husband's dying wish that you would trouble his family. So they come in, and, and they're, they're sitting there, and it's time for me to get up, and all the people are there. It's a big funeral. Like they're expecting me to, to be like, oh, it's so hard and bad and stuff. But his name was Casey, and I, I ended up saying, so here's what I want to ask you right now. I said, in a minute, we're all going to go in the back, and we're going to have a lineup, you know? They're, we're going to have little sandwiches that have mustard on them for some reason, and we're going to eat, because that's what you do at the funeral. You guys are going to eat the sandwiches, right? And you're going to have your little tea, and you're going you're gonna to mingle around in hushed silence because it's a time of mourning. And this dear woman, Tinica, she's going to be standing over there in the corner. And uh, your job now is to go to her and to her son and her daughters and tell them right now why they should have any hope at all in the world. What you got? Because here's what I think you've got. And I told them, I think that most of you believe that when people die, they rot in the grave. And you make up grand stories about, oh, they're looking down on us and stuff. But deep inside, you know that that's not really what you believe. What you actually believe is in this moment, there is nothing you can say to bring peace and hope. Nothing, because you have nothing. But the Christian, the Christian they can boldly walk up to this dear family who has lost the love of their lives, the leader of their family, and say, this is not the end. The story isn't finished here. Christ is risen. Casey will rise. You will rise.
What's your hope? Oh, man, this room was like... <laughs> Actually got an email from one of the guys later that said, you should never say that thing at the funeral. I'm embarrassed for you. <laughs> it's like... Okay, but that, look, this is his point, is that those who've fallen asleep into Christ, they've perished then. All of us are in the situation of the secularist then. We can play games and come to church and pretend, but really, there's nothing. There's no, there's no reward. See, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, and Paul's speaking about himself and the Christians he's talking to, we are of all people most to be pitied. We, we are the people who gathered around and said that the aliens were going to return on June 20th. We got all of our band together, stood on top of the mountain and hummed the alien tune and they never showed up. We are to be pitied. We are colossal fools, wasting our lives on meaningless discussions about theology that isn't real. If Christ is risen. You, you, can, you can feel at this point, the resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of the Christian message. Without it, we lose everything. Um, since we're talking about secularism and the worldview that says that there is nothing after death, um, Friedrich Nietzsche was a philosopher, German philosopher in the 1800s. And uh, Nietzsche was known as being a nihilist or a nihilist, depending on how you want to say that word. And the idea that he said is, look, there is no God, and because there is no God, there is nothing, there's no morality, there's no uh, life after death. There are so many things that we rely upon God to provide us, right? Somebody says, that's evil, and you say, are you an atheist? And they say, yes, that's a category you don't get to access then. Do you follow that? In order for there to be evil, there has to be a definition of the good that transcends all humanity. And if there is none of that, if there is no God, then you don't have that. So stop using words like evil and good, should and shouldn't. There just is, okay? There just is. Nietzsche believed all that, right? He, he said, listen, if that's, if that's the case, then what, what the world needs is an ubermensch, a superman. Do you know who read his stuff and really believed it? Little, little Austrian guy named Adolf Hitler. Nietzsche actually uh, wrote a parable, one of his little books. He, he wrote a parable, and the parable was called uh, The Madman. And it's a story about a, a, a guy who runs out, there's a bunch of churches around, he runs out into the public square and he starts screaming, we've killed God, we've killed God, we've killed God, and how then can we? And he starts to explain through the voice of the madman all the things that we've lost because we killed God. Don't you see? How could we possibly live the way we used to live if God is now dead? And the story goes that he yells and yells and he stops and he stares at the people in the, in the, in the uh, square and the people in the square just stare back silently like, 
And the madman then takes a step back and says, oh, I've come too soon. You don't realize where this leads. Just really a story about Nietzsche. He was basically like, I'm way ahead. Everyone gets mad at me because I'm way ahead of the curve. But when you get rid of God, you get rid of all the things that God provides. When you get rid of the resurrection of Jesus in Christianity, you get rid of all the things that the resurrection provides. Hope for a future. Victory over the powers. I don't want to live in a world of hopelessness. And yet, that's exactly where I live. If there's no resurrection. I listened for a little while uh, after Easter's, usually in the past, I'd ride my bike and I'd listen to podcasts. And once one guy would, he would kind of go over a bunch of Christian churches and he would pick podcasts out. And he would put them on his little his little radio show, and he would say, "All right, we're gonna we're looking for the worst Easter sermon." And he would always have one Easter sermon from somebody who basically believed this, and they would talk about Jesus rising in your heart so that we could do good and be nice to everybody. And honestly, I would be riding my bike, and all I could think was about this madman, and I just wanted to just run into these churches and start screaming, "Don't you see what you've done?" You've ruined it all. There's better things to do on a Saturday night, guys. There's better things to do in a Sunday morning, Christ followers. Brunch would be nice. But. <laughs> So yeah, don't be ridiculous, says Paul. But the future is fabulous, right? But in, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. Uh, it's the thing that you go, you go out of your farmer and you want to figure out when the fields are ready for harvest. And so you're like, eh, I think it might be. You go to your little area and you harvest a little bit. You bring it back in and you're like, it's ready. The, that first fruit is a sign that the rest is going to follow in kind. It will be just like the first fruits. Christ is the first fruits, meaning that the body that he was raised with, the death he dies, he dies. But the body he ra is raised with is the same body you and I will be raised with. It's a resurrection, physical, eat stuff body living in the new heavens and new earth. So whatever he is, you want to guys, most people are like, well, I'll tell what is the resurrection body like? Which is he, he gets into this. But if you really want to know, just go and look at what Jesus was doing after he rose again. He's the first fruits. Yeah, you might be on the third day of the harvest over there, but it's coming, man. The first fruits of those who have, and again, don't you love this language, fallen asleep. You know, you go to bed tonight, and, and you'll, you'll close your eyes, and you'll fall asleep, and some weird things are happening. Number one, your mind is alert, yeah? I mean, you remember sometimes how alert your mind was. You dreamt about ponies and victory for the Blackhawks or whatever it is. And so your mind is alert. But your body is still. 
And this is what Paul's saying. Listen, when we die, our mind is alert. Yes, we are disembodied for a period, but not for long. Like people who fall asleep, we will be risen. We will arise in the dawn with the light of day and the sun streaming through the windows. You don't use words like death for Christians. We don't die. We fall asleep. Doesn't mean that you're like in some abyss and not feeling anything. No, your mind is active. You're with to be pre- absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're with the Lord, but that's not where you're staying. We'll get to that again in a second. For as by a man, this man he's talking about is Adam. Let's go back into the beginning of history. He says, "For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead." So Adam brought death, Jesus brings life. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Here's Paul's statement about the end times. You ever want to know what's hap- going to happen? What's going to happen? I mean, what order is it going to happen? And how many times is Jesus going to return? And all these things? Here's Paul's summary of what will happen. What you and I can expect. Um, Christ, the first fruits, this is a reference to his resurrection, so already happened. So Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, that's second, so one, first fruits, second at his coming, right, the return of Jesus, physically coming back to the world. Then those who belong to Christ, We'll be raised. Now, listen, you're like, wait, I want way more detail than that. He's like, no. That's what you've got to understand. This, this is what's important. Jesus rose. He will return. And he will raise. Who? All those who are dead, fallen asleep in Christ. All those who belong to him. And then comes the end. Then comes the end. Again, please, really, it's important for you for you to note that um, th- this is the theology of the afterlife. You ready? I find that most people don't know that. So what are we doing with the afterlife? Well, most people, we say, well, you're going to go to heaven. Okay. What does that mean? Most people in the Christian church these days believe that you, you die and you go into this disembodied bliss. Theologians call this the intermediate state. So you and I commonly view heaven as a disembodied, hey, my body is there. My mom, is she's buried in Linden, Washington, and she is in a disembodied cognitive, right? She's aware state. The martyrs in in Revelation are said to be crying out to the kings to come and bring all things to a righteous end, okay? So you have an intermediate state. Most people are like, yeah, I can't wait to be in heaven where I'm free from this body. But listen, listen, the Bible has very little to say about the intermediate state. We have like a parable in Luke 16 that's Lazarus and the rich man, and maybe that is, is, is you know, literal. And, but that's about it. 
when the Bible talks about heaven, it's not talking about the intermediate state. It's talking about the new heavens. That's not New Hampshire, okay? I've been there. It's not like that, okay? And the new earth. And that's not New England, right? So here, you have these two things. And what will happen is that you die, you go to the intermediate state, but Jesus will raise us again. So your future and my future is physical, here on a new heavens and renewed earth with steak. I've said this before, right? And the Doritos don't have calories on this new world, right? I hope. But th this is what he's talking about, th this whole event. And then comes the end. Listen now, listen, when, when I read the rest of this, this is a really big point that I want to make here, okay? The rest of the language here is all about the divine kingly warrior. Let's just listen to the language. What, how's he going to come? Well, then comes the end when he delivers the, the kingdom to God the Father after he's going to destroy every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy who is going to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet all of this language is supposed to evoke in your mind or what's he supposed to come like the warrior king. In the church, we like to talk about Jesus in, in language that is rightfully compassionate and kind and loving and, you know, sweet. But the next time you see Jesus physically, um, he's going to come more like Braveheart. Okay? You know, you take our lives, but you can't take our feet. Like, that guy. That guy who's, who's riding this massive horse. Have you read the end of Revelation? The next time you're going to see Jesus, here's, here's what it looks like. Um, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and Truth. It's a reference, of course, to Christ. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, giving evidence to how royal he is and worthy he is. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Probably this is a reference to the robe on the end that's dipped in blood. You say, where'd the blood come from? Hold on. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven... He's not coming alone. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure to designate holiness, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to say really nice things to all the people they, so they feel good, to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will, now here's the language, where do you get this blood on the edge of the thing, right? So this is being drawn from a passage in Isaiah. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The image is an ancient winepress. You know, you see, I love Lucy. She gets in there and she's squishing the grapes and all is coming out. Yes, I love Lucy. Okay. This is what, this is the image that when Christ comes to judge, everybody's in though there and the king squishes the grapes and he gets blood on the hem of his garments. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a, he has a wicked tattoo. King of kings, the Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, hey, birds, ravens, vultures, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings. He will slay his enemies. They will be lying in the, in, the, in the fields and the birds will be invited to come down and gorge on the flesh of those who thought themselves to be the most mighty people in the world before they met the guy with the tattoo on his leg. The flesh of who? Captains. The flesh of mighty men. I don't care who they are. Array them against the Lord your God, he will tread them like grapes in a wine press. The flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Okay, most of us read that and go, whoo, my goodness, that's really gross. Like what, it, what in the world? That's, that's, ama- that's absolutely amazing. But the, po- the point he's trying to make is that King Jesus will King Jesus will come. His resurrection then will be ours. Skadoosh. And all powers, physical, non-physical, all those who dare to lift up their heads to heaven and say, I want to fight the Almighty. All those who said, I'm not going to pay attention to you, to your word. All of those who trashed the church, who treated with contempt the God himself, who hung Jesus on a cross. All those who remained in their sin and didn't receive the free offer of salvation will stand over against him and they've got no shot against the king of kings. You know that um, that image was what sustained the African Americans when they were in slavery. You do know that, right? Like if you go back and you read some of the old Negro spirituals, the songs that they sung when they were picking cotton, uplifted from their land in Africa, dragged across on a boat, had no power to fight back against this enemy. And the guys, the enemy was wicked and brutal. All the systems pressed in against them. And so did these people sing. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Sweet. You know this song? 
One of the lines in, in that song is this. Um, if you get there before I do, coming for to carry me home, tell all my friends I'm a coming too. What are these songs about? Rescue. Rescue from one who can remove them from the slavery and reward them with everlasting bliss. Swing low, sweet chariot, riding the chariot, swing low, gather me up, coming for to carry me home. They sang of heaven, and it sustained them. You can read through all, all of their hymns. One of the great threads, one of the great stories that is retold over and over again in those songs was the story of Pharaoh chasing the people of God across the Red Sea, and God by his might swallowing up the most powerful people on the planet. And that gave them a, a kind of hope in the midst of some of the hardest suffering that they could ever imagine, that you and I could ever imagine. They could say, this is not the end. The master is only little petty master because the master of masters comes. The king who supports all of this system he thinks he can get away with all of it, but the king of kings comes. And listen, because you and I know this, because that's the way that it works, that there is a grand future and we live under oppression, we can follow in the footsteps of people like that who have, um, whose souls have been buoyed up by this great, great hope. You, you and I, in other words, don't, we don't need to seek revenge for things. I, I don't have to fight you. I, listen, I'm going to fight for justice everywhere I can find it. But you know what? We live in a fallen world where sometimes that fight ends with me dying or my friends dying and it comes to nothing. But even while I'm dying at the hands of the oppressor, I don't need to seek revenge or pray for it. I can say with Stephen or Jesus, they don't know what they're doing, Lord. Because I know that God will repay. Repay no one evil for evil, says Paul in Romans 12, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all, even against the people who like hate me and treat me with disregard and look over, overlook me and don't reward me for my hard work. Right, beloved, never avenge yourself. Why? Leave it to the wrath of God. I'm not asking you to say, oh, just forget about it. It's no big deal. You're making too much about it. No, I'm saying take it, hand it to the God who is the king of kings and will hold accountable all who have stood against him. You see, then I can live grievously. I don't need to have my rage fantasies. I don't need to go in my backyard and think, oh, I should have should ditched the them. What about I don't need to do it. Time it comes up, I can say, Lord, it's all in your hands. Until you come for to carry me home. Listen, I'm, uh, one last one here. Um, I said, don't be ridiculous. The future is fabulous. Indeed it is. And then finally, uh, sober up. In fact, this last part is the only part, actually, where Paul gives a command and he starts this little section with something that you're, everyone's like, wait, what? 
So here it is. Otherwise, he says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Wait, what? You just kind of threw that in there, did you, Paul? Okay, what does that mean? Well, there's about 200 interpretations to this, and I'm literally. The big two are these. Number one, uh, it, it is what it says. It, you know, you, you can be baptized vicariously for your friend who died. Uh, the problem is, in the early church, there was no evidence of that ever happening. It didn't happen in, in, in the pagan religious orders. It didn't happen in the early church. And when it started to happen, it only happened among a bunch of heretics who were chastised by the early church fathers for doing it. So we don't have any historical record for it. So it's like, wait, what? Surely that's not what Paul means. And it's not what he means. Because the other big option is by being baptized, you see this language, on behalf of? You can translate this on account of. And when he's mentioning the dead here, every other place he talks about the dead in this chapter, he's talking about the righteous dead. So what it's probably meaning is he's saying, otherwise, uh, if there is no resurrection, what do people mean by being baptized on account of the righteous dead? In other words, they've seen the righteous dead, say the martyrs, or say others, Go forward and have hope in the midst of suffering in a way that they cannot, they, don't, they themselves don't have. And they see it and they say, I want that. And so they come to faith in Christ and they get baptized on account of the righteousness of those dead people. And Paul's like, why were those people righteous and suffering martyrdom and dying and the result being these people being baptized on account of it if there's no resurrection? Why would anyone suffer for Christ? And that's what he says next, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf or on their account? Why are we, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brother, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. It's probably a reference to political leaders. Language is used in Daniel 7 to talk about wild animals or the religious leaders. And Paul's picking it up here and saying, what, why did I go over against the religious, or the religious and political leaders in Ephesus then? Why didn't I just stay at home? Learn crochet. Busy my time by seeking shells or whatever on the beaches. I, I don't know. But why am I doing it? Christ is not raised. And if the dead are not raised, here's the outcome. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right. You know this. You've seen Groundhog Day. Right? You guys remember Groundhog Day? There's a point in the movie where he wakes up every time the same morning. It's always Groundhog Day. No matter what he does in that day, he wakes up the next day. Six oh two and Groundhog Day again. And he's in this like constant loop. Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day. So at one point, he, he's, he's really sad for a while, and then all of a sudden he realizes while he's bowling and getting drunk with these guys he just met, that wait a minute, if I wake up every day at 6.02 and nothing that I had just done in the day before ever happens, then why wouldn't I just do whatever I want? And his friends were like, totally. So he gets in the car and he drives them away from the police and off a cliff. Because, hey, it'd be fun. And then he wakes up at 6.02. And the next thing he does is he goes to this massive diner and he orders everything and he puts it in front of him. He's smoking a cigarette, eating cake with one bite. 
Because that's, that's what Paul's saying. If, you, if there is no tomorrow, if there's no hope, just do whatever, man. Just do whatever. Don't go and suffer. But here's where he gets to the final bit that's I want to make our final bit. He said, don't be deceived, though. Bad company corrupts, ruins good morals. He's, what he's saying here is the people that you guys are hanging around with believe this. Does that sound familiar to you and me? Because I live in a world where that's what they argue for, hedonistic existentialism. That's what they argue for at every turn. Every movie's about it, man. You just, you be you, and you chase and seize the day, man. YOLO. That's, that's, the, that's the serenade of our day. And Paul's like, if you spend too much time with people like that, bad company's going to corrupt good morals. If your mind is so set and focused on that kind of thing, you're, you're actually going to end up thinking that way. And that's the problem with you, Corinthians. Uh, I've spent time in other countries, uh, lots of time lived there. One of the things that's really both fun and very difficult is you realize when you go to another nation that they have very different customs than you do. Uh, I remember when I first moved to Dallas, Texas, one of the things that they'd say, they never said, we're, we're doing this. They'd say, we're going to go ahead and do this. It was always go ahead and do this. They also used to drive their cars to the end, like, you know, you get on an on-ramp. They'd go to the end of the on-ramp and stop. So I'm from a place where you go, the on-ramp is actually to get on. So you'd be looking over your shoulder and you look around and like your life flashes before your eyes because there's a Ford just sitting there. Drove me crazy. But you know what ended up happening? Like two years into it, I'm at the end of that thing and the new guy's behind me, freaking out, right? Because you adapt. When I went to New Zealand... So, so many things that I got wrong and regularly had, had a hard time. There's a, there's, a, there's a regular way that New Zealanders um, do things in the morning. We always have a tea break in the morning. By the way, dinner is called tea. So when they say you're going to come for tea, they don't mean morning. They mean come for dinner, but with tea. And then after dinner, they'll have supper, which is not tea. It's like a biscuit, which is a cookie. And they'll ask you when you're doing this, you want a cuppa? And you're like, cuppa, a cuppa, yeah, a cuppa. What they mean is cuppa anything, I don't know, it's just hot, Some, something hot. And if you're there and there's a bunch of guys standing there, you'll be standing over in the summertime and you'll be looking at these different hot dog looking things on a, on, on a barbecue and the men will just sit there and go, mm, yeah, yeah, mm, yeah, see the rugby, yeah. This is called a sausage sizzle. <laughs> My name is Jeef. Hello, Jeef. Now, after you're there for a little while, we fly back. People would say, oh, my gosh, you sound just like him. What do you mean? You know, because you adapt. It's what you do, right? I found out the other day, Wisconsin calls something a bubbler. I was like, what the heck? What is that? Oh, it's a bubbler. I'm not going to adapt to that <laughs> at all. But you know that when you live in certain places, you adapt. And that's normal. It's fine with words and customs and things like that. But the problem is that kind of adaptation when it comes to worldview and values, when you are a citizen of the age to come, 
but you're living as a, in the present evil age, and you're accommodating all the time to the present evil age, man, that can get dangerous. How do you mean? Well, bad company corrupts good morals. It's, look, Jesus has to be the one who gets to define for you and for me the way things are. How the world functions, what matters, and what Paul's saying here is that Jesus says the resurrection is real. And that your future is fantastic. In fact, that's his very end. Wake up from your drunken stupor, you drunken fool. And don't go on sinning. Some have no knowledge of God. Look, I say, this to, I say this to your shame. What does it mean to wake up from your drunken stupor? It's to recognize that the resurrection is real and then realize that my future is rooted in a God who chose me, is bringing me safely to that end, will raise me, bless me forever. And now that fact, that trajectory defines now. Everything I care about, all the things I sacrifice, all the meaning in my life is defined then into now. And then that just rocks your world. John Newton used to say that, uh, you know, if you know you're going to get a, a million dollars and you're in your little carriage, John Newton wrote uh, Amazing Grace, in your little carriage and you know you're going to get a million dollars and you break down an, you know, an, an, uh, an hour outside the city when you're walking to the city to get your million dollars, nobody says, oh, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Because the million dollars makes the present suffering worth it. Uh, this guy sent me a picture of where he watched the Easter service from in Grand Cayman. I said, I can come and do it live next year if you want, right? <laughs> Grand Cayman. Oh, imagine we go on a trip to Grand Cayman and uh, we're on the plane and we're an hour late. And somebody's walking around going, I can't, an hour late, this is ridiculous. I can't believe it. Somebody get the pilot up in here. I got something to say to them. What are you going to say to them? You're going to grab them by the shirt and say, we're going to Grand Cayman. You're not allowed to complain on the way to Grand Cayman. Because the reward just changes everything in the present. Everything, guys, in the year 250, I'll finish with this, in the year 250 AD, there was one of the greatest plagues that the world has ever seen. They thought it was uh, some kind of early smallpox. It made people uh, uh, throw up and lose their limbs and their eyes almost burn out. That's how it was. I mean, it was so contagious. People were throwing their family members out in the street. It was terrible. They said at one point in that time period that 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome, which didn't have that many people. That the, that the population of Alexandria over the plague went from 500,000 to about 150,000. 350,000 people died in that plague. But one of the most remarkable things that happened during it was, according to Cyprian, one of the church fathers, he said that the church, when everybody else was throwing these people out in the streets, the church was going out in the streets and collecting them and caring for them. They were bringing them inside. And all the pagans were like, what are they doing? This is crazy. And in many cases, the Christians would die because they were trying to care for these dear people. When asked about it, the Christians just started saying, what do we have to fear from death? I, I don't understand why, why we, we don't have to fear anything from death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. 
So we can sacrifice in remarkable ways, knowing that the treasure is just beyond. In fact, they said at the time, Cyprian did, other people would not think this a time for festival, but far from being a time of distress, it is a time of unimaginable joy. Who says that in the midst of a pandemic that's killing all your friends? The person who has the answer for that is Esther. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, we have to sacrifice and suffer better than we do. It's almost like bad company has corrupted good morals for us. And we've started to believe that this life is all there is. And so we just collect all of our stuff and comfort ourselves and be cozy. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you that this life is so short and the sacrifices that you think are so big are so puny compared to the grand grand scheme and money is not a big deal. It's not. Sacrifices for the kingdom, the time, sacrifices for the kingdom, all of it, sacrifices for the kingdom, because I promise you, in years to come, in years to come, you will realize it was all, all worth it. Why don't you sit in your resurrected body in the new heavens and new earth? Do you see it? The resurrection, do you see it? Do you feel it? You will. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for my friends and your patience and ability to talk about this. Lord, your resurrection just is full of hope. So I pray, Lord, that you would bring it near and dear to our hearts. Lord, it has to affect the way we live here and now. The sacrifices and suffering we're willing to go through. Would you make your people an example of what it looks like to live with a hope that transcends the present? If there's anything our society needs right now, it's the knowledge that there is one who will come and bring justice, true, perfect justice, and one who will come and redeem and judge rightly, and that we can trust him with all these things, and yet we're the ones who have it, Father. May our lives reflect that truth. Would you make it so in Jesus' name?